The Prevention and Early Intervention Network is pleased to bring to you our podcast series, Perspectives on Prevention. My name is Marion Quinn, and in this podcast, I'll be meeting people who have experiences to share, insights to explore, and expertise to draw on from the field of child and family services. We hope these conversations inspire, challenge and engage anyone interested in improving outcomes for children, families and communities. In this opening episode, I caught up with Vivian Gearin, former Director General of the Probation Service. I suppose what I'm saying overall, Marion, is that it's always, you know, whether it's an economic recession during the 80s or a pandemic in current times, it's always the poorer people, the people who are already struggling to an extent who are worst impacted by those particular crises, whether they're public health or economic. Vivian reflects on his career and we discuss the relationship between poverty and crime. That's all coming up in this episode of Perspectives on Prevention. Welcome, Vivian, in this episode of Perspectives on Prevention. It's lovely to have time to chat with you. So we're going to just hear a little bit about your career and and I suppose really focusing on your observations from mostly the far end of the continuum of where we intervene, particularly with young people. Um, and, And I suppose, you know, where you think we could have done things differently, where we could have intervened earlier, um, you know, to prevent things escalating to the point that people got involved in the services that you were involved with. But but before we do that, just tell us about how you came to be the head of the probation service. What was the journey? Okay, yeah. Well, I started studying social science in the late 1970s and um, into the early 1980s in UCD. And while I was there, I actually did a placement, um, a practice placement in the Irish Probation Service. And I enjoyed it so much that I really felt I'd like to work there. So when I when I finished my degree, when the first opportunity arose that the probation service were recruiting new probation officers, I applied. But that was after after I had graduated. Uh, I actually got a job as a social worker with what was then Dublin County Council. And I was a social worker working in the Tala area with uh, traveller families uh, in the in the Tala area. So that was that was a fairly tempestuous time uh, for for travellers and more generally uh, in the in the early to mid 1980s. Uh, and then in 1985, as I say, a job or opportunities for jobs came up in the Irish Probation Service, and I applied and got a job there. And I spent the rest of my uh, full-time working career as a social worker there, uh, you know, working as a probation officer. I worked in prisons and I worked in the community. Um, and then I was promoted at different stages through the ranks, so to speak, you know, from being a team leader and a regional manager and so on, up to becoming director of operations. And then in 2012, the director job became vacant and I applied for it and got it. And then I was there for seven years from 2012 to the end of 2019. So I've I've enjoyed all of that time, I must say, I really enjoyed mm, it. Fantastic. And Vivian, just to go back to your early career days in Tala. 
so sort of mid 80s very poor resourcing Tala particularly would have been still a very new community with very little services just generally the country had there was no money in the country I mean would you think that the families you worked with then how how have things changed for them now or have they well, I think materially things have probably changed a lot and certainly services in the overall context have improved. But exactly as you said, working in, in Tala at that time, I mean, I, I remember we used to talk about Tala New Town, was, which it was at the time. It was really a, a rapidly expanding urbanisation. Most of the traveller families that I worked with were living on the side of the road or in fields in appalling conditions. So... You know, even on that front, I think basic living conditions have improved somewhat, but not really as much as we might have hoped. You know, some of the things I remember from Talamore generally at that time was, you know, high levels of unemployment, but even much more basic than that. You know, there were housing estates being built and occupied in Tala, where, you know, with very young children, young families, and not only were there not uh, schools in the area, there were no shops. There weren't even footpaths in, 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 in some places, you know, much less sporting or recreational facilities. So really, it's it, it's incredible in a way that people got on and lived their lives in spite of all of that, you know, and mm. that, that, that there wasn't more uh, trauma and turmoil uh, as a result. So I suppose going back to your question, I think things in the overall, in, in the macro context have improved, but not really for some people as much as we would like. And I think that's even been highlighted recently by people's experience during, during the, the COVID pandemic. Some people, and I certainly would include myself in this, have struggled a bit at times during the pandemic, but our struggle has been nothing to a situation where you have people with, you know, young children, people, you know, children or family members with uh, disabilities, mental health issues or whatever. And I suppose what I'm saying overall, Marion, is that it's always, you know, whether it's an economic recession during the 80s or a pandemic in current times, it's always the poorer people, the people who are already struggling to an extent who are worst impacted by those uh, particular crises, whether they're public health or economic. And has that been a theme in your career, poverty? Oh, it has, yeah. Like, I think, you know, while, while I would firmly believe that anybody can, you know, anybody is capable of committing a crime, for example, but it's no coincidence that uh, if you go into any of our prisons, if you look at, you know, if, if you meet a group of people who are under probation supervision, a significant proportion of them will come from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds and so on, or other types of vulnerabilities. So, and, you know, that's, that's for all kinds of reasons in terms of how we construct crime, how we construct and deal with people who offend. So all of that contributes to the end result of who ends up either in detention, in prison, even in court or on probation or whatever. So you have a whole mix of things going on there, but that's poverty and all that goes with it is certainly a feature of. So say, say a bit more about how we construct crime. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I think even, you know, there's, uh, and, and this construction of crime happens in slightly different ways in different societies and at different times, I suppose, but really the people who end up uh, being 
prosecuted and charged and even who end up on probation or going to prison tend to be more people, as I say, who come from poorer and more vulnerable uh, backgrounds. And, uh, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that if you or I, Marion, committed a particular type of crime, it's probably more likely we'll be dealt with in a, in a, in a specific way that's potentially more lenient than somebody mm-hmm. who might commit a, a similar crime who's coming from, from a different background, who looks different to us and so on. So I think mm-hmm. that's, that's part of the way we, uh, as a society, con- you know, construct crime. I mean, just to give you another example, I know from work that I do at the European level that the, the whole area of cybercrime, internet-based crime, is probably the biggest uh, growth area in terms of crime being committed. But that's not reflected in the in the numbers of people and the type or category of individual that's being prosecuted and sentenced before the courts, because we still haven't managed to get to grips. You know, white white collar crime, cyber crime, internet based crime, a lot, not necessarily all, but a lot of which is committed by people uh, who otherwise don't come to the notice of the police. So there, I mean, that implies that there is some inequity that's very deeply embedded in our institutions. How do we address that? How do we change that? Well, I think we have been addressing it to some extent, certainly from, you know, from the 1980s up to now, I think a lot of positive things have have happened. Um, You know, just just to give two examples, you know, I think we we uh, keep young people in detention much, much less than we used to. That's at, at, at one extreme. I think we also do a lot more positive stuff in the educational realm, for example, you know, the fact that we have DESH schools now, that we that we prioritize resources for children uh, who both individually and collectively uh, face a whole lot of challenges in their area, I think is absolutely appropriate. But that's something that we didn't have, certainly when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, just to go back to my original example, I think consciously as a system, as a justice system, as a society, we proactively took a decision that we shouldn't be sending so many young people into detention. You know, traditionally around the time I started working as a probation officer, there was a much more prevalent view of, you know, the idea of the short, sharp shock, send send somebody, if if you catch somebody doing something wrong when they're young, give them a a serious shock, you know, send them into, into custody, into detention, they learn their lesson and then they won't reoffend. And that's, you know, been proven time and again and consistently to be completely wrong. You know, it's, it's actually counterproductive. So it, it took us a long time to get to that. But I think we were, were much better off for that, that we send far, far fewer young people into detention. Now, as I always say, I'm, I'm not denying that some people, for various reasons, do need to, uh, you know, end up in custody. They, they are appropriately... Uh, sentenced to some form of custo- uh, custodial sentence, but that really has to be kept to a min- uh, to mm-hmm. a minimum, I think. And I think we've we've moved much more positively in that direction. You know, the whole closure of St Patrick's Institution yeah. was a very positive step. Um, but twenty or thirty years ago, that would have been unthinkable, I think, because people thought that's the only way to deal mm-hmm. with and respond effectively to young people's crime. <laughs> And Vivian, in your more recent years, then when you, you know, as the 
director or director general of the probation service and so having a lot more I suppose of you know responsibility around policy and what why why are we so slow to learn what doesn't work and why are we so slow to take on board and integrate what does work do you think? Yeah, well, first of all, I do think we know on, on a whole lot of fronts and a whole lot of levels, we do know a whole lot more now than we did about what works and what's effective. But you're absolutely right. It is very hard to implement the changes that are so obviously needed. And I think there are various reasons for for that. Any system, any organization, you know, functions and operates, I think, like a big ship. And it's very, very hard to turn the ship around at all, even a little bit, even when everybody knows that it needs to be facing in a, in, and moving in a different direction. So, you know, our organizational culture, I think sometimes we have seen significant changes taking place when individuals, you know, are, are, are proactive. So sometimes individuals in a particular place at a particular time can have a hugely impactful mm. uh, and, and positive influence on what happens we shouldn't have to depend on individuals, but sometimes I think it, it takes that to, you know, to, to change things. But really at a, at a cultural level, it's very, very difficult to embed the changes that need to happen in an organization and in a, in a system. But I think it can be done because we've seen it being mm-hmm. done. Certainly I've seen it, you know, in the criminal justice system here mm-hmm. or in other countries, you know, like for example, in Finland where as a system, as a society, they, they made a decision years ago that they wanted to reduce their, their prison population. And they set about looking at ways as to how they could do that. And they did it. Sometimes tend to feel we're prisoners to the way things currently run. Um, so, you know, we, we throw up our hands and we think, oh, God, the numbers in prison are going up. Isn't that terrible? That's a reflection on how bad we've all become as a society. You know, there are more people. Coming. But, you know, sometimes you have to take a different you have to come at it from a different angle and say, you know, sending people to prison per se is not a good thing for them individually or for society. And we have to, you know, really go about getting a different way of, of doing mm. So let's just think a bit about what you've sort of observed over over the years in and and what are the missed opportunities that you've observed for the people who who have you know been under a probation order either pre or post uh, a custodial sentence you know are there kind of obvious sort of factors that get them there and you've obviously you've talked about poverty but but are there are there have you seen things that you kind of think well you know if only if only somebody had intervened at that point if only somebody I mean, what what kinds of what kinds of things have you observed? Some of the things that I've that I've observed and I would feel very strongly about is the the fact that I believe as a system we could have done a whole lot better and we still can do a whole lot better in relation to young people and offending. I think the Children Act was was and is a great piece of legislation. I think in some respects it's overcomplicated in in some areas. I think it could be more streamlined. And I do think that at, at a certain level, there has been too much focus in terms of what followed the Children Act and uh, young people's offending. There has been too much focus at the two extremes. So there's been it's been seen as, in my view, uh, a kind of a competition between the custodial side of things, the detention centre and so on, versus diversion at the police stage. And I think it has really been a missed opportunity to some extent, 
what happens in between. Specifically, I'm talking about community sanctions like probation and community service and so on. Having said that, I, you know, I do think I, I mentioned the, the hardship and the economic recession of the 1980s, but our more recent recession in, you know, 29, 2010 and 11 and so on came at an unfortunate time when, for example, the probation service here were actively building up the resources that we were dedicating to children and young people uh, who ended up on probation or, you know, on uh, post-custodial supervision. The economic recession hit then, there was a moratorium on recruitment. So we never really got to deliver the full extent of what we wanted to do vis-a-vis services for young people. So that was another uh, lost opportunity. And I think like the slow ship analogy that I mentioned earlier, it's very hard to rebuild that back up. But I do think that uh, even aside from from those factors, there there has been at at a systemic level a neglect of that middle ground of, uh, you know, which is largely populated and managed by uh, probation in contrast to the custodial side, which gets a lot of attention, particularly to the Garda diversion side, which gets a lot of attention. It's almost like there's a, a blind spot, I think. Uh, why, why do you think that is, Vivian? I don't honestly know. I, I think to some extent it may well be based on the way our youth justice systems have been set up. And particularly when the Department of Children and Youth Affairs, as it was, uh, was established and you know operating and things have changed a little bit on that front more recently. But, you know, the, that department had, had and has responsibility for detention side. It, it has a big input in terms of the diversion, which got a lot of priority. And I just think that that middle piece uh, fell mm. out. Now, one of the dangers of that is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a big uh, supporter of diversion, but I just think the other, you know, uh, other uh, outfalls from that or outcomes has been that we, we focus so much on trying to divert young people who offended into the Garda diversion program. And then there was the whole issue of, do you remember there were a few thousand cases that kind of, for want of a better term, went missing then. Yes. Know, unaccounted yes. For. I think what happens then is, or what happened, is that some of those young people ended up getting involved in a pattern or cycle of offending. At, at that stage, they were gone long past the diversion possibility. And by the time they ended up in the courts and potentially on probation, things had deteriorated to a much more serious level. Mm. So so I think what we needed to do there and still need to do to a certain extent is have a vision and a view and hopefully the new youth justice strategy now just out earlier this year uh, will be able to progress this. But we need a a view, uh, a line of sight across the whole system. And basically people should get the appropriate level of intervention at the appropriate stage, which should be the lowest level, if you like, the minimum intervention at the earliest stage. Um, so you know, divert as many people as possible. You have to deal, you know, you have to constantly deal with that so that then if for the small number who need to be escalated to the court and probation phase, if you like, or level, that that happens at an appropriate stage. And then in turn, if people need to be escalated, hopefully very, very few then at that later point into the uh, detention type of response. But, but really, we will only deal with that problem 
effectively to the extent that we deal with that whole picture as a complete uh, system. Does that mean that every that the whole that all the organisations have to become one organisation, but they really need to be talking to each other, you know, doing what they do in a coordinated way. And so, um, given that, as you said, that you know we have desh schools, we have, you know, large most communities have you know fairly well resourced youth services. We have everything that goes the wraparound with desh. We've now got, you know, if you really want to talk about prevention and early intervention, we now have the free preschool, which obviously that's going to take some time before we see the longer term impacts. There are a lot of services and supports that have been in place for quite some time. Sounds like you kind of feel there's still a bit of a disconnect with those organisations, that there isn't that kind of joined up thinking. Is that right? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. I, I think the level of cooperation and connection is much better now than when I started working in probation, where you know there was there was much lower level of connectivity and, and coordination. But I just think we haven't gone far enough in terms of uh, of that coordination. And I think you know that's not unique to Ireland. I think that's that's an issue that that affects uh, jurisdictions right across mm. the world. And what helps? What what makes that happen? Do you think? Have you seen it? Have you seen it working really well anywhere? And what? And if so, what? What was the, what was the X factor that that, that enabled that? I think to some extent we have to be clear about who's responsible for for what. I I think, for example, local authorities have a huge, a huge impact on people's lives. They and they have a huge imprint in local communities, and I know that in 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 some countries things are more coordinated at a local level at a kind of a local authority equivalent body mm-hmm. uh, or municipality or whatever um, i think part of the problem here I, I i i think in ireland we we think we have a very localized system of operation but what is there actually masks a very high level of centralization you know so central government departments have much more control than apparent mm. even so i i do think we need to have uh, have more local responsibility and accountability and uh, you know the, the, oh yeah the other point i was going to make was i think to some extent we have because we have specialized services that deal with whether it's crime or health or mental health or education We've over years developed an, an approach within all of those areas that, you know, I only deal with crime. So that's my responsibility. You deal with education. So that's yours. And I won't cross over into yours and you don't cross over into mine. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think coordination is about crossing over or, or taking responsibility, but it's about cooperation in, in, a, in a way that puts the citizen at the center in terms of the outcomes that we're both trying to, to end mm-hmm. up with. I think some of the other issues are we tend to deal with problems rather than, uh, you know, trying to promote well-being. I, d- I undertook a recent exercise in the Drogheda area and, you know, I was trying to focus not just on the problems that I was asked to explore, but also mm. ways where that, you know, people in that area could improve their collective well-being. Because I think that's that's where we should be starting, really. Mm. From. And as you mentioned, there, you know, uh, just earlier on you know, initiatives that help people from the very earliest stage after a child is born, if you like, to ensure that that child's well-being uh, gets the best possible start in life from day zero, you know, I think is really important.
mm-hmm. and we do need to um, uh, deal with with it at that level and at the same time coordinate what happens later on so that we're we're front-loading the interventions to mm-hmm. help and all of that uh, so that people further down the line like I was in in terms of probation are only dealing with what needs to be dealt with at that stage because everything else has hasn't worked. So Vivian just thinking back over over your um your time you know from Tala onwards really from from your social work and then through into uh you know all the different roles you've had within the probation service if you were to sort of pinpoint one thing that you observed that you know in in people who were coming through the probation service that you thought if only we could change that if only we could shift or or support or whatever what what might that have been to some extent I'm, I'm i'm mentioning this just because it's fresh in my mind because i was thinking about it again recently but i was i was i was speaking somewhere else recently and i, I referred to the provision under the children act for family conferences run by probation officers at the court level. And I, I, I don't understand why, but that's a, I, I mean, I might have some ideas, but I'm not sure how accurate I would be. But anyway, that's beside the point. I, I, I wonder why they were never used in, in any great numbers. And from day one, they've only been requested by the courts in a very, very small number of cases. And in actual mm-hmm. fact, I was looking at the probation services annual report for 2019, which is the most recently published report, and the number of family conferences dropped in that year to the, what seems to me to be the lowest ever. It was gone down to nineteen or something. Wow! Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, from a previous high, quote unquote, of maybe sixty or seventy in a year. Mm. I always felt that that was a really, really positive and just a really powerful intervention, and it mm. it it was brought into play at the court stage, and at the same time, it had the possibility of diverting a young person out of the court at that stage without a conviction if it went well Mm. Um, and it was also really good I always felt from a probation practice point of view because even if you ended up with that individual on probation you were off on a much better foot in terms of followed afterwards because you had engaged very you know positively with them family with other people so I mean that in some ways in terms of of the numbers that have come through uh, in relation to those family conferences is tiny, but it's one area where I really feel, you know, uh, it, it could have been used and still could be used. Positively. It's interesting because I'm not sure how much it's used by social workers either, because obviously family welfare conferencing is, is um, you know, legislated for yeah. as well. And um, there was a time uh, when that was a fairly common practice amongst social workers, but I'm actually not sure if it if it is now. But I mean, I'm wondering the the Department of Justice does have plans to develop a restorative justice approach, yes. and obviously the family conferencing would fit with that. So maybe there's an opportunity to, um, you know, to try and reinvigorate that. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah I can I mean you can see how for practitioners it would be a very you know, challenging, but a very positive way of working because it's so relationship based. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And um, so, so Vivian, what's your what's your proudest moment or what are you proudest of in, you know, from your career to date? Well, I, I focused throughout my career, but particularly in my time as director on what happened at the front line, you know, what happened in, in terms of services. 
So uh, in the in the few years leading up to the end of 2019, when I finished up there, I focused a lot on working to introduce evidence-informed practice. And I understand from speaking with former colleagues that that's still going on at the moment. And really, since the 1990s, there had been a lot of focus in probation services across the world on what works, you know, what kind of programs, what in interventions and so on have been shown to be most effective in helping people to reduce their risk of reoffending. And really what I'm talking about now, though, is what has been described more as who works. So it's it's to what extent can can we help our probation practitioners to be as individually effective as they can? And, you know, there's various uh, aspects of the terminology, but people talk now, you know, nowadays of core correctional skills. So there, there are certain things that, uh, you know, and ways of approaching uh, one's work that if you do it, you know, if you do it in a particular way, uh, very much in a, you know, positive and proactive professional relationship uh, focus, you know, valuing human rights and so on, that we can be as individuals much more effective. So it's, I mean, it, it doesn't throw the programs and the formal interventions out the door, but it's really seeing the individual worker as being an intervention tool in their own right and how can mm. we upskill them uh, as much as possible. So I, I was really proud to have started that uh, work. Mm. Um, while I was and what was your motivation for that? Why was that a focus for you, Vivian? Well, I think because I, throughout my career, I've always been, you know, focused on doing the best job that we can. And I've also been focused on, you know, research. I continually, I'm, I'm continually reading and I'm in contact with what's going on, in, you know, internationally. I still do that. I'm involved in international probation and penal policy bodies. I spent a few years heading up the research and statistics unit in the probation service. So it's, it's, it's an area that I've always kept in touch with. And I've always felt whatever is happening at, a, uh, at an international and research level that we should be trying to implement here. And even when I did the interview for the director job, one of the big things I said at that interview, because I was asked about my ambition or goal for the service, I said, I want the Irish probation service to be the best probation service in the world. Now, some of the interview board kind of smiled back and, you know, I think one said, is that a bit ambitious? And my view was, no, absolutely. Why shouldn't we want to be the best? Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I would still feel the same today. Fantastic. When we're wrapping up now, just tell, tell, tell us about your book. You're co-authoring a book at the moment. Yeah, I'm co-authoring a book. Um, it's due out later in 2021. I'm, uh, my co-author is Dr. Shane McCarthy, a lawyer. The title of the book is Probation and Parole in Ireland, Law and Practice. So it's aimed at people practicing or studying in probation, parole, law, criminology, social work, forensic psychology, and so on. Well, Vivian, thank you for your time. It's been lovely talking to you and hearing your reflections on prevention in, in, from the probation uh, perspective. So thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Perspectives on Prevention, the podcast series created by the Prevention and Early Intervention Network. We hope these conversations inspire, affirm and excite you. To find out more, check out our website at www.peien.ie.